Hi again, and welcome back to Trapped History. I'm Oswin Baker. And I'm Carla O'Shaughnessy. And we're here to share hidden stories of unsung heroes. In today's episode, we want to introduce you to John LaRose, perhaps the most important figure in black British life you've never heard of. Is that the same LaRose who recently had a street named after him? Yeah, yeah. Okay. LaRose, LaRose Lane was previously Black Boy Lane. And mm. that's another reason why we're talking about John today in the company of the most excellent uh, Jorish Lachane. <laughs> Thank you for joining us, Jorish. Thank you very much. So some of our listeners might have heard of John because of the street renaming, because it really hit the headlines, didn't it? It was all over the news. Some people were so opposed to it. But apart from that, I don't know what else I know. Well, that's... Probably why we should look at why the street was named after him. Yeah, OK. So why LaRose Lane? In January this year, 2023, as part of a wider review of place and street names, Harringay Council in London formally changed Blackboy Lane to LaRose Lane. The reasoning behind the change was pretty simple and pretty plain. There were significant and rather obvious issues with the lane's old name, of which we will be discussing with Joris in a moment or two. But more simply, John had been a Haringey resident. This is what the council's website says about John. John LaRose was a publisher, poet and essayist. He founded the Caribbean Artists' Movement and publishing company New Beacon Books, which has a bookshop in Stroud Green. In 1975, he co-founded the Black Parents Movement from the core of the parents involved in the George Padmore Supplementary School incident in which a young black schoolboy was beaten up by the police outside his school in Haringey. Right, OK, so there's the Haringey link. And there's quite a lot to unpack there, isn't there? Yeah, and but it isn't the reason I first heard about John. And we featured him on the Trapped History Instagram account back in 2021, I think. Mm. It's not just police brutality. It's not just the Caribbean Artists Movement or New Beacon Books or the Black Parents Movement, important though they are. Now, the reason that John sort of swerved into my consciousness in the first place was Steve McQueen's TV series, the first Small Axe and the second Uprising. Small Axe is a series of stories which are just beautiful. They're mesmerising. There's a wonderful one called Lover's Rock, just about a, a house party. They are humbling and they are also deeply shaming as a white British man. The second, Uprising, uh, that's a documentary. And I urge anyone to watch them. They're, they're still on iPlayer. Uprising, the documentary, is all about the New Cross fire when on the 18th of January 1981, 13 young black people aged 14 to 22 died in a blaze in southeast London. And John... John LaRose, headed up the New Cross Massacre Action Committee. So that's where I first came across John. Wow. OK, there's a lot to process there, isn't there? You mentioned police brutality, tragedy, protest. So can we go back to the beginning? So why should our listeners know more about John LaRose? Well, this is what Linton Quasi Johnson, the dub poet, says about John. He actually wrote his obituary. The depth and breadth of his contribution to the struggle for cultural and social change, for racial equality and social justice, for the humanization of society, is unparalleled in the history of the black experience in Britain. Mm. 
John is born in Trinidad in 1927. And despite promising stints as an insurance salesman and as a teacher, he taught in Venezuela, it is always going to be culture and politics for him. The collision of the two seemed to speak to him like nothing else. I mean, he, he starts off by producing a regular radio programme for Trinidad's Youth Council. He's a founding member of the Workers' Freedom Movement. He edits their journal. He becomes a trade unionist. He's the general secretary of the West Indian Independence Party. And he co-writes the first serious study of calypso music. It's a really intellectual approach to life based around, again, culture and politics having equal weight. In some ways, he's inspired by an earlier generation of pan-Africanist writers and leaders who understood the power of the written word. I mean, more than that, they understood that that written word had been written and controlled and rationed by others, in this case, by the British. And so they sought to take ownership, this sounds very like the Communist Manifesto, sought to take ownership of the means of dissemination of that word by whatever means necessary. And so you get, in London, in the 1930s and the 1940s, the writers George Padmore and C.L.R. James, the independence leaders Jomo Kenyatta, Kwame Nkrumah. You know, when John was growing up, these people set themselves up in London and published journals, magazines, books, anything they could. They wrote letters to other editors, they wrote articles in other periodicals. Whatever they could get their hands on, the message and the medium were crucial for them. And so this is the template which John draws upon when in 1961 he travels to Britain, to London, and where, just five years later, he sets up New Beacon Books. This is the first black publisher in Britain, and the bookshop still exists, actually, just about half an hour walk from where we are now. And 1966 is a very busy year for John because he's a founding member of the Vietnam Solidarity Campaign. He also founds the Caribbean Artist Movement, and both the publishing house and the artist movement had a simple aim – to show that black history, politics and culture actually exist. It's the same thing that George Padmore and C.L.R. James would be doing a generation earlier, taking control of the message. John's later international, it's a bit of a mouthful this, <laughs> International Book Fair of Radical Black and Third World Books, simply known as the Black Book Fair. That would take this mission round the country for over a decade. Thousands of attendees would come along to hear people like Tariq Ali, Lem Sisse, Bell Hooks, Ben Okri, Earl Lovelace... And topping all that, in 1973, John made a documentary about the Mangrove Nine. Again, check out Steve McQueen's Small Axe series. We should be getting sponsored by, <laughs> yeah. by Steve McQueen for this. Um, it's an excellent drama on uh, a legal case which really became the first acknowledgement of racism in the British police force. And in the 1970s, John chaired the Institute for Race Relations. On his death in 2006, the Institute called John one of the most incorruptible of men. Wow, praise indeed. I mean, it seems like a pretty open and shut case. A, a good man to name a street after. Indeed, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and, and this is a good moment to bring in our guest today. Uh, I'm delighted to be able to welcome Joris Lashane here. Joris, lovely to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for having me.
So, Joris, you've got a really good tagline, making the implicit explicit. And your short films on Instagram and TikTok, they really challenge lazy thinking or no thinking at all. And they've got a massive following. More than we've got. I more, have to. Than, more than we've got. <laughs> <laughs> to, to go back to what John LaRose, his approach really resonates with me because although my work isn't around books, I think that with video and the video content that I make... Uh, do pretty much the same thing, or at least with, with the same goal, which is retaking control of the narrative and, and be able to tell stories and other people's stories, but from a point of view that is um, not centered around the usual systems of power. I was re-watching Uprising last night, and John appears in it, and he's a very... He feels like a quiet man. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's not putting himself at the front. He's not wanting to be a leader. But the thing that is so important for him, it is about doing exactly what you what you said, about finding ways of pulling people together and pulling ideas together where you can challenge the, the existing power dynamics. And that seems to be, in your own way, what you do as well. Absolutely, yes. I completely relate to to what he was doing and and his intentions and and the, the the power of the narrative is something very important uh, very often we focus a lot on whose story we tell but there's also the question of who gets to tell the story and who gets to pick the story and it looks like John LaRose was seeing the importance of who gets to tell the story so how do you feel about two white people telling the story of John LaRose That <laughs> <laughs> silence. <laughs> no, no, no. But, yeah. you know, I I feel uncomfortable about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, I don't have an issue with that. Um, in the question of who gets to tell the story, we're talking about a systemic issue and who has systemically access to the means of spreading the words what what i'm interested in in looking into and challenging the reasons that make it much more likely for you to get to tell that story than for black people from the from john larose's community so i don't have a problem with you doing that it's better than not doing it but it's also interesting to think and and think about the the reasons why um, maybe podcasts who might be doing the same thing as what you're doing and covering the same kind of topics, why f- maybe they don't reach the same audience as you reach. And um, so it's, it's, not, it's, not a, it's not an individual problem and it's certainly not your problem as people. Uh, exactly. Yeah, no, it, it's a very important distinction because when we talk about systems of inequality, and you know systems that make it more difficult for certain people to have access to have a platform and also more difficult for them to connect with an audience it's not about individuals so keep doing what you're doing (laughs) (laughs) i think i think that's a clean bill of health i understand you studied architecture and you visited La Rose Lane a while back, mm-hmm. just after its name had changed. Yes. Can you tell us a bit about that experience? Yeah, so I heard about the situation and the changing because of the controversy that it created. There seemed to be racism in this story, and it was about the built environment. 
giving a name to a space, that in itself is an act of claiming appropriation, but not in the negative sense of the term. But it's simply, you know, the, that's also why in colonization there was there is a big aspect giving names to things that already had previous names and indigenous names. That is a form of violence um, and, and erasure of, of culture. So naming things is extremely powerful. Having a street that was called Black Boy Lane was a statement, regardless of the history of the name. You know, history is one thing, but if we look at how it is perceived, uh, because the, the biggest argument against changing the name was that the, the origin of the name is not necessarily racist. My point is, even if it was not originally racist, the fact that it is perceived today and the fact how it is received and understood in our modern society is racist and therefore it deserves to be changed. So that was a very interesting situation for me that I wanted to to see and physically experience as well. So that's why I went there just after the the, the new signs had been vandalized. It felt really uncomfortable, me being a black person. There were signs on, on the windows and on the facades of, of certain houses that read Black Boy Lane. And I did see people who, um, I overheard them um, talking about replacing or defacing, vandalizing the sign again. Um, I did not expect to see such overt something that I won't hesitate to call racism, but of course they would uh, deny that. They would deny that it has anything to do with racism. They will probably invoke, you know, traditions and this is part of their identity, the name of the streets that they live on. There's a bus route that goes um, through, that goes down that road. And surely people must have, well, in fact, I know that many people commented and said, you know, every time I was, uh, was, on the bus, past that bus stop, I always wondered, uh, how, how is that possible? How is it still called that, that way? So clearly, it, it, was, it was sending a message and it was perceived by a certain category of the population as something rather violent. But who is forgotten? Who is always forgotten? And whose feelings don't matter? Um, and that was a good example of that. Mm. Interesting. Very aggressive. There's a Black Boy Hill near where I live in Bristol, actually, except it's not marked on any maps as Black Boy Hill, but people still refer to it as Black Boy Hill, especially the older generation. I don't think, I think it's just so ingrained in their consciousness that they've said it that they continue to say it, but I wonder how long that will continue for. Black Boy Hill was also quite often mentioned in, in the comments to, to, my, to, to my video, and I think... Um, the street was named after the pub, named Black Boy, um, yeah, the Black Boy. Uh, but on that pub, on the facade of that pub, there was a depiction of a black person that was so offensive that in the 80s it was removed. So regardless of where the pub got the name from, there was already clearly an association with racist imagery. That already in itself says enough, regardless of whether we're talking about Charles II or, or you know, chimney sweeps. The, the fact is that racism is already part of that history. You don't need to go that far back. And how did it, how does it make you feel being there, going there and visiting it? Do you feel safe or do you feel scared? Yeah, I did not feel safe. When we, when we were talking about recording this podcast, you floated the idea of recording it there uh, on, on LaRose Lane. And yeah, one of my 
my answers was I would not really feel safe recording going there again. MK, you you were saying earlier that you've grown up in the area, you know the place a bit. Yeah, growing up around in the area, I always wondered why it was called that. I never knew the backstory until just now, actually. It was always sort of strange. Yeah. Like, you know, you get on a bus in this kind of black boy lane. It was always like an odd one for me. Yeah. But but thing is, I grew up around, like, we used to go to New Beacon as well. My mum used to take us. So it was like, there'd be like, mum, there's five of us all. So she'd take all of her five sons and they're literally two years. And <laughs> it's just like, the, mm-hmm. like, like that. And we'd all go to that because it was the only like black bookshop. And my mum made a point of always making sure she got us like birthday cards. Mm-hmm black um dolls for all of our like yeah. the babies in our family etc so it's like yeah but i always felt like haringey specifically tottenham there was like an area of like okay there's a community of like blackness here like because like growing up in london and, and like being sorry being black is like you know there's there's kind of his own little tensions yeah. you know like when you're a teenager you go to the wrong area people don't recognize you they're like what are you doing around here if you know what i mean so even going to South London, I was saying before, it was like, it was just kind of strange going to certain parties in South London. Even the black African and the black Caribbean thing, there was that weird kind of, oh, you're African, you're Caribbean. It was, I don't know, it was just like a weird kind of like divide that you felt. But as you get older, you get over it. Yeah, and that's one of the the characteristics of, of blackness in the UK. Unlike in the US, for instance, there isn't a unifying sense of of identity, black identity and black culture, because in the UK the majority of the black population they come from a recent fairly recent immigration from from the ex colonies so black people who are here they are black british from jamaica from nigeria and those those would be completely different experiences uh, in 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 the us for instance well those would be black people who have been on american soil for 500 years there isn't a one unifying black identity in right. the uk yeah and I think that, that kind of feeds into what I was saying before about not feeling black enough. Mm-hmm. You know, like, there's times when I've not felt black enough or I've not felt white enough or I've not felt, you know, like, my dad's, my dad's white, but he was, like, he wanted us to take my mum's surname because my mum's surname is Nobadula and it's African and it means something. And when I was young, I hated that because I had the most African name in school and I'd get teased of, like, why's your name that, right? But then I grew older and I understood why my dad wanted me to have that name because it actually... You could chase that name back so far back to South Africa and it's like it actually is something that means something. But when you're kind of in this kind of mix of, you know, like you don't really know where you fit in or you don't know like what your history is in comparison to people who look like you's history, mm. you're just like, oh, I don't know, like, you know, you don't want to like step on anyone's toes or put yourself out there for like, you know, it's kind of a strange thing. Yeah, and I yeah I can relate to the feeling of not being black enough, but maybe for different reasons. But you know, for instance, being in the UK, uh, but the way I speak, I don't. You know, I've had to learn English, so my English to some people sounds almost posh, um, but it's not my fault. And 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 to many people <laughs> here, I may not sound black enough. So if I if I go to uh, if I go to order 
you know, Jamaican food in, in, in Brixton, uh, it's almost <laughs> embarrassing because if I open my mouth, it's like, no, I swear I'm Caribbean too, but just from, you know, it's, I've had to learn English. But yeah, I'm, I'm, or when I go to the barber as well, I, I really stand out the minute I open my mouth. Uh, because everybody speaks Patois, Jamaican Patois at my barbers, and, and there I go, could I please have a... Yes. <laughs> like, I, I feel like uh, apologetic on this. I swear I'm, I'm, I'm from the community. <laughs> so if we're talking about bringing together politics and culture, we have to look at John's educational work. And in 1969, he set up the George Padmore Supplementary School for West Indian children. Sorry, hang on a second. What, what is a supplementary school? OK, well, it is how it sounds, really. It's supplementary <laughs> okay, education. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, right. um, so it's additional to um, normal schooling right, okay. and after school, you know, several days a week um, and support to black kids. And these supplementary schools, they're still around now. Um, there was a surge in them after COVID, a surge of interest sorry, from black families during COVID. And then when the um, BLM movement really kind of kicked off as well. And when these additional classes started back in the 60s, black parents and teachers really knew that their children were being very poorly served by an education system that reinforced low expectations, low achievement when it came to black students. And what I mean by that is that black British kids, hundreds of them, were deemed, and this term is horrific, educationally subnormal. And then they were siphoned off, put into these other schools. Um, they were called schools for educationally subnormal. Weren't given any kind of education whatsoever. And it was so damaging. And there's a documentary, actually, that I've seen recently, and I urge anyone to watch it. It's on iPlayer, and it's called Subnormal, A British Scandal. And you see some of the people, how affected they were by going through these, these schools. And what is so sad is that the parents of these children often thought that those kids were going to get a privileged, a better education when they really got no education at all so it's shameful it's just really awful isn't it something like a bit over a quarter of the kids in those ESN schools were black British and that was at the time when in mainstream schools about 15 percent of the of mainstream school kids were black British so it was what nearly twice the proportion 28 percent versus 15 percent and that that creates this this loop um, of self fulfilling pro- prophecy that those people that those kids already had the odds stacked against them with a test that was unfair or testing system that was unfair because it relied on um, cultural context and knowledge that they did not have not because they were less intelligent but because they were coming from a different culture. It's an outcome that was already expected and the whole system was designed to create that outcome, which then justifies the system. Yeah. And that yeah. is... We're, we're normal, you're subnormal. Exactly. We'll put you in a school for subnormal people. You've just proved you're subnormal. Because Therefore, you're in that school. Yeah. So, Carla, just to be clear then, so John's supplementary schools were a way of trying to mitigate against these horrific ESNs. Yeah, schools. absolutely. The black community could see there was a clear problem and they were like, right, we're going to deal with this from within. And parents and people within the community volunteered their time to support kids after school. And it was very successful and very positive. So we mentioned at the top of the show, but in April 1975, a schoolboy called Cliff McDaniel was stopped, searched and assaulted by police in Haringey. 
that he was charged with insulting behaviour was found guilty and sentenced. So when John found out about this, he was absolutely incensed and he set up the Black Parents Movement to advocate and campaign for their children. And the first thing they did was to challenge Cliff's verdict and his conviction was quashed in the September of that year while an investigation began into police brutality. The Black Parents Movement, meanwhile, would become the strongest black-led alliance fusing politics and culture in the country and Cliff's campaign was only the first of many. And then, of course, we have the New Cross fire. It's a horrific house fire on a cold January night in 1981. They said that the next day the water from the fire hoses had frozen on the on the front of the house. It was a joint birthday party for two girls, Angela Jackson, who was turning 18, and her friend Yvonne Ruddock, who was celebrating her 16th birthday. A piece of furniture, an armchair is deliberately set alight in the early hours and the building is soon an inferno. 13 young black people aged 14 to 22 die that night, including 16-year-old Yvonne and her elder brother, Paul. A further 27 are hurt, some of whom will have life-changing injuries which they are still dealing with to this day. A week later, a thousand people march to the scene of the fire to demonstrate and the new Cross Massacre Action Committee is established with John as its chair. It's important to note that this isn't just called the New Cross Fire Action Committee or the New Cross Tragedy Action Committee, it's the New Cross Massacre Action Committee. And this is pretty much the point in British history when black British people stand up and say we're not having this especially when very early on the police rule out arson and suggest that the fire was probably accidental. And this is in an area where there were racist attacks, there were firebombs, um, the National Front were all over this part of London at the time in the, in the late 70s and early 80s. And so six weeks after the fire, on, it's on a Monday, and it's very important that it's a weekday, they want to be seen and heard and noticed. On Monday the 2nd of March 1981, 20,000 people marched through London on what was known as the Black People's Day of Action. They journeyed from New Cross, marched down Fleet Street, were in Parliament Square, Downing Street, and then ended up in Hyde Park. At one point along the way, I think it was a Blackfriars Bridge, they're met by police in riot gear, but they avoid the provocation. And, well... How do you think the press responded to this? How do you think they reported this uh, <laughs> Black People's Day of Action? Well, if um, well, if we think about what happened in 2020 and the way that the media covered um, covered the protest, I'd imagine that it was um, portrayed as a black riot. Well, the Daily Mail said uh, when the black tide met the thin blue line. Uh, the Sun shouted, wow. they, the blacks, ran riot in London. Wow. And the Daily Mail screams, rampage of a mob. Wow. Yeah. So the dehumanizing here is really, really strong. And yeah, making it scary, an indistinct mass, a mob, a tide. Um, that in itself is dehumanizing just in the terms. And on top of that, making very scary and completely misleading in the power dynamic here. Because a tide against a blue line, I mean, who had the power on the, those streets on near Blackfriars? 
yeah. clearly not the tide. I think the thing that, that really strikes me, and again, this is conveyed so powerfully in Steve McQueen's Uprising, is that, again, it's called Uprising, it's not called Fire, it's not called Protest. It is people suddenly deciding that this is just enough, they've had it. And it does appear to be a defining moment uh, for the British black community. The first time they'd been seen en masse. This was the black people's day of action. This wasn't New Cross's day of action. And it also, it wasn't the usual suspects. This was mothers and grandmothers and children and families, old people, young people. This was a whole community out in protest. And John was leading it. That's why he's such an important person. That's why I think we have to honour people like John on Trapped History. If you have a story to tell, that means you're human, you're a person, and that already challenges certain narratives and that makes some people uncomfortable. And if you have a street named after you, that means that not only you're a human and a person, but also someone who's worthy of being noticed and remembered. Joris, every episode we ask our guest for a nomination for the Trapped History Hall of Fame, somebody who we haven't heard of but we should have. Who would you like to nominate? Well, that was an interesting challenge because one of the narratives that I like to challenge is um, that history is made by individuals and people and heroes. All of that is true. There are heroes. But I think that because of that, we fail very often to recognize communities and groups of people. And so one of the things that I thought about was... Um, the, the fight for freedom in, in Guadeloupe because the, the French Caribbean experienced the abolition of slavery uh, during the French Revolution. But what is very particular to our history is that we then had to go through slavery being reinstated by Napoleon. So that is something that is quite unique in the world, that we had a taste of freedom and then then we were put back in, in shackles. People were fighting against that. People died hero heroically. There's, for instance, the, the, the Battle of Matuba. So that would have been 1802. The armed forces composed of formerly enslaved people, but also people who had lived free their entire life because they were either mixed or white people, but who were fighting to maintain freedom. They ended up being encircled in a place called Matuba. And knowing that um, the situation was hopeless, they decided to make the whole place explode as the enemy would come in. They knew they were going to die, so they decided to die um, by taking as many enslaving army um, soldiers as possible with them. Before the, the place exploded, they said, uh, vivre libre ou mourir, so live free or die. And these are, so, the martyrs of Guadeloupe? Yes, the martyrs. So there are some figures, but I'm intentionally not mentioning the figures that, that you know, who were leading that, that, that battle. And, and yeah, there's this idea that we have the British to thank in the case of, of, of France and French colonies, slavery had already been abolished before and was abolished a second time without the intervention of the British. And in the case of Guadeloupe, for instance, at the time, so the 
French was the, the, the force that was abolishing because they were going through the revolution. And the British were the ones who were keeping people enslaved. So oh, that, that whole messes, narrative... Oh, it so messes with the traditional sense of what history is and, and the things that we've been taught. So did the actions of the martyrs of Matuba amount to anything? Were they able to claw back their freedom? Unfortunately, not at the time, not in 1802. So slavery was uh, re-established. Apart from being a heroic act, um, no, it was not successful. They lost that battle, not the war. <laughs> so, Carla, mm -hmm. can we have a community and not a person in the Trapped History Hall of Fame? Yeah, absolutely. Why not? Yeah. I think uh, the Martyrs of Matuba are an absolutely worthy entrant. Thank you so much for that. Well, thank you very much. Thank you. So, Oswin, who have you got for us next? A truly inspirational man in a truly horrific time. Ben France, who died earlier this year at the age of 103. World War II soldier, war crimes investigator... Nuremberg prosecutor and the man who made the International Criminal Court a reality. We're going to be joined by the historian Keith Lowe, who knew Ben, who wrote about him, and who can help us understand how we deal with justice, revenge and guilt. You've been listening to Trapped History, written and presented by Oswin Baker and Carla O'Shaughnessy. Our engineer has been M.K. Lee, and the Trapped History theme is by Pavlo Buterin. You've also heard the voices of Tim Redman and Craig Storrod. If you've enjoyed this episode of Trapped History, please tell your friends and give us a rating, it really helps. And head over to trappedhistory.com for bonus episodes, transcripts and more. Thanks so much, and see you soon.